Hey, everyone. Welcome to the GTM News Show. I got Beth here today. Hi. Great to have you. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, so Beth and I did a, a course through Pavilion, uh, Winning by Design Revenue Architecture, uh, this last year. It was awesome. I learned a ton. And she was gracious enough to, to, to come on the show to talk about some things that I learned that I think are really important, especially as we go into 2024. Uh, really around go-to-market motions, go-to-market maturity, what's changed, how to how to find your right go-to-market motion. Because what I've noticed a lot too is there's all these different uh, either buzzwords or you know concepts, ideas like, hey, we should do community, we should do PLG, we should do ABM, and and then there's also terms like go-to-market that have emerged as well. And so I'm trying to understand oh, first what's right for you, right at the stage of your organization maybe some history on go-to-market motions, um, and then kind of put it into context of where do these different strategies fit and all that fun stuff. So uh, Beth has actually put together a slide of some some graphs and some things she's going to take us through. So Beth, if you want to just maybe introduce yourself a little bit, a little background, and then maybe share your screen and we can, we can jump right in. Yeah, absolutely. Great to be here with you, Taylor. So yeah, I'm Bethy Haskell, and uh, I've been working in technology since 1999, so definitely for a minute, focused mainly on recurring revenue. But the last three plus years, I've been working with a company called Winning by Design, and they have really been spending time developing this concept of revenue architecture. Um, and so I'm a revenue architect, I teach revenue architecture, and we really believe that going forward, this is going to be the mindset, the, the discipline that really helps companies navigate what has been a pretty weird time in the world of recurring revenue. Um, so some of what I will share today is actually from the revenue architecture course, um, but with the focus on the go-to-market stuff that you just talked about. Sound good? Awesome. Now, one thing that is useful to know is where the term revenue architecture comes from, what it means actually. And it's really just kind of what it sounds like is being much more deliberate in how you architect your company to optimize revenue. And at the end of the day, that's it. We have a tendency to be somewhat reactive in what we do. And the idea is you don't have to be. There's different models. There are principles. There are things that can help guide your planning of building a successful company. So let's talk about go-to-market. And I think the first thing to talk about is where we're at now and kind of how we got here. Um, you know, you can see on the graph here, starting in 2012 through till today, um, for most of the last 10 years, we had what is often referred to as the golden age of SaaS. I mean, company just unicorn after unicorn, amazing success, lots of exits, all of these incredible outcomes for recurring revenue companies. Then we had the pandemic, which was an interesting time because everybody who wasn't online jumped on at the same time in a way that they hadn't before. And it's pretty amazing, actually, that the internet, the cloud, all of the apps, everything supported basically what was an overnight shift to everybody jumping online almost solely for work. And then it crashed. So why did it crash? That is hard to kind of wrap our heads around. And it's important to know why, because it connects really directly to the importance of this go-to-market thinking and how we approach it. One of the big things that led to this drop-off is that for a long time in those 10 years, we had this growth at any and all cost mentality. 
What I mean by that is everybody was going for high valuations, which were primarily based on growth rate acquisition. So at the front end, so not so much to do with the recurring revenue part of recurring revenue companies, but more about the growth and the acquisition piece. Also, money was inexpensive. So rather than spend time on building really deliberate and efficient processes, you didn't have to. You could actually throw bodies at problems and buy more tools and and it could cover over a lot of what at the end of the day are really inefficiencies. And all of those things, this growth at all costs and the spend and the focus on acquisition really kind of came to roost in end of 2021, beginning of 2022. And where we find ourselves now is at a point where the companies that are going to survive through all of this and come out really strong on the other end are going to be the ones that prioritize sustainable growth. So that's mm. what we're going to talk a little bit more about. I love it. Thanks for, for setting the stage, Beth. And just a couple thoughts there. Um, I've actually worked with a lot of service-based reoccurring revenue companies. And kind of my observation working with also SaaS companies is especially due to the profitability of SaaS and with the the uh, cost of uh, you know requiring getting money to then grow, et cetera, was essentially zero. It created this interesting dynamic where um, on one hand, it was all about scalability, which actually, I think in the long run, created really poor experiences for buyers as well. So we created this really interesting environment where for the folks on the service end, service recurring revenue, like service-based companies, I think they have to be so focused on experience because it's so much about relationships, et cetera. They never lost that. But kind of another observation I've seen over the past couple of years is this, especially SaaS, and that actually a lot of times creates horrible experiences. It creates this silo mm -hmm. effect of no one's talking, just throw money at it. Um, we don't really, we, we're not matching buyers' expectations. We're actually just trying to acquire customers as quickly as possible. Um, and not only does that, is that not sustainable if you're trying to be more cost effective, something I've learned a lot, especially from the service based businesses, <laughs> where it's like, you just don't have the margins to, to throw money at it. Um, once again, I think of that experience element. And uh, when you're looking at go-to-market motions or when you're looking at different strategies, um, that sustainable part really is how do we match buyers' expectations? How do we tap into where meeting buyers where they're at um, and also where your company's at and creating just a great experience right, for them? Um, and I think that's part from my, my experience of seeing what is sustainable is really a lot about that experience part, um, especially working from, from service-based companies. It's so interesting um, how SaaS has, has really paved the way for um, trying new things. I think we can learn, like if you are a service-based recurring revenue, you can learn so much from SaaS companies because they're always like, good to market because they have so much money, they can invest in so much teams to try new things. Uh, but on the flip side, sometimes we miss out on the experience, um, which I think we can learn from our our friends um, in service-based businesses. So just an observation to throw in there. There's a first principle of recurring revenue companies, whatever kind of recurring revenue company you're talking about. Recurring revenue is a result of recurring impact. It's like the only way that people are going to engage with you as a customer is if you can provide an impact that is a priority to their business. And then if you deliver on that impact and keep delivering on it, that's how they're going to stay and grow with you. So if you think about it, rather than thinking about customer happiness or you know having the right sales uh, pitch, it's got to be all about impact, mm. highlighting that impact, understanding if it's a priority, mm. delivering on it, and continuing to deliver on it. Everything really needs to hover around that and be centralized around it if you're going to be successful. 
because that's that's what's going to get you customers. That's what's going to keep those customers. Oh, I love it. And, I, and I've and i used that phrase uh, many times with my clients and just <laughs> in my work because I think it, it does encapsulate it. And I think even from go-to-market motions, from sales and marketing, reoccurring revenue, I think the, the impact almost has to be earlier on in the stages. And as we get into stages, like mm-hmm. PLG, right, is all about time to value. How do we provide that impact as yeah. quickly as possible? Exactly. Uh, content marketing, thought leadership, that's providing a form of value, uh-huh. a form of impact before they even become a customer. And it's counterintuitive, right? Yeah. It's this very selfless mindset, the idea of giving first, uh, providing impact without expectation. And that creates this, this flywheel. And whoever can provide impact the fastest, and with a great experience, I think we'll win ultimately. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll get the business right on the front end okay. sustainably, but then also, like you said, keep that mm-hmm. recurring impact uh, to maintain that recurring revenue uh, and whatnot. So super cool. Absolutely. What the right thing for a company to do is, is going to be different depending on what stage they're at. So what you're looking at here is this growth curve. And Every recurring revenue company is going to follow this S curve. You start slow, you move through the startup phase, validate a whole bunch of things like your product market fit, and then you move into scaling where your growth speeds up, you get into this grown up mode. And eventually, once you start hitting your total available market, things are going to flatten out. And then you need to either add products or acquire a company, things along those lines. The important thing here, though, is what stage you're at is going to mean that you have to focus on different things and the balance of cost of acquisition, for example, with dollars coming in, it's going to change depending on where you're at in this curve. So there's no one size fits all. And even for your own company, what you need to do to be successful and sustainable is going to vary. As we think about that curve, you know, I mentioned the first thing is product market fit, right? But very early on, you need to figure out what the right go to market fit is, meaning you know, certainly who your market is, but also what are the steps that you're going to take to identify impact, to get those right prospects in there, get them over the line, trusting that you're going to help them achieve an impact that's a priority. You need to understand pretty quickly what activities need to happen to achieve those goals as part of that go-to-market motion. This stuff is hard. Um, when we look along the growth curve, you can see these percentages here, and these refer to the number of companies that successfully make it through each funding round. You can see how there's the A funding round, B, C, et cetera. And not many companies navigate successfully along this whole curve. It's not easy to do. There's so many different challenges and things to overcome. One of the most challenging things is getting the go-to-market right. And this is why companies that don't manage to successfully navigate that growth curve go wrong is on execution. In the beginning, when you're a startup, it's all about product. And to some degree, you're just, you're figuring out, you're kind of winging it in terms of what's working with getting those prospects identified and getting them over the line to become customer. But it's really about the product. You have something that can deliver that impact or service, you know, to cite your, your comment regarding services. But as you mature and move from a startup mode into a scale up mode and then to a grown up mode, the importance of your go-to-market activities and motions gets bigger and bigger. And if you're not prioritizing that, it's going to be really hard to be successful. Interesting. I'm curious, um, especially with the shifts in the market motion, there's obviously some some, some that are better than others, uh, despite, especially depending on the stage of organization. But 
do you feel have you seen any shift of even like earlier on the startup like that that ratio of product to gtm even increasing the, the ratio of investing more into gtm just with the fact that every market every channel is so much more saturated we have less money more competition i don't know i just feel like it's the companies i'm working with because yeah. almost all my clients are under that 10 million range and yeah. um go to market has been even harder there's no way to no, no doubt about it and i think like i maybe five years ago i could agree that this you know it was 10 percent of your startup phase could be in go to market or whatever that ratio is any thoughts there uh, i think the biggest thing is less about percentage of time and emphasis mm. on go to market but how it's viewed is almost mm. even the more important thing and I'll actually use this to illustrate what I'm talking about. It's really common that we think about marketing and sales and customer success. Those organizations very often have their own leadership. They have their own metrics. They have their own tools. And maybe they're interacting okay together. Maybe they're collaborating really well on some areas, but maybe not other ones. But regardless, the siloed thinking, I think, is where the problem really comes in. And if you have a startup where people are moving really fast and wearing 10 different hats and a lot of things are going on, it can be really easy to mm -hmm. end up looking up $5 million later and realizing that the marketing processes mapping to the sales processes that well, which may not be mapping to the customer success processes that well. Mm -hmm. So you might have go-to-market teams and they might be doing good things. But the system of them and tends to be where I think a lot of companies fall down because it's just old mm. habits, right? We think about yeah. these things in that way. Seems that uh, it's our mindset of like, you know, industrialization of sales almost. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's this American way, really, of industrializing yeah. everything with the assembly line. And there's, there's a lot of good to that, no doubt, from an efficiency mm -hmm. standpoint. But we lose out on uh, creating a cohesive process that makes sense from the buyer's perspective, great experience, sustainable, et cetera. Um, and then there's flaws like we've talked about. Who owns this? Because it seems like marketing seems to yeah. be... Well, it's funny because a lot of CROs that I work with or know, um, you know, come from a, usually a sales background. You know, they I see a lot of them owning or, or, or claiming the GTM term. It's really interesting. I think they're, they're marketing themselves mm -hmm. really well. But marketing teams are involved in all these areas. Then I also hear some folks are like, the CEO needs to own it. Um, yeah, I'm just curious your thoughts, especially, I mean, obviously each stage of the org is different, but is it every department yeah. needs to be thinking this way, right? How do we all work this together? Or who's, who's stepping outside of these departments to really make sure all these three things are working in harmony? This is part of the problem and what's going to make it messy for the next bit, where it hasn't traditionally been a role that's responsible for the whole system. Right. When you think about the end to end system and winning by design uses the bow tie as the visual with the left side of the bow tie being the lead gen, lead development, sales cycle center of the bow tie is closed one. And then the right of the bow tie is onboarding and adoption and renewal and expansion. And when you think about that bow tie and all the different departments within it, but then there's the bow tie itself does own that. Now, I think historically nobody has, which has been a big part of the problem. <laughs> and Maybe in some cases, you might have a CRO who truly gets the whole thing and not just the acquisition piece. But I'm starting to see a shift where either a COO kind of role can be hmm. the one who's holding the system together and responsible for that. 
I'm seeing roles like chief transformation officer or mm. chief growth officer. It's almost um, a way to think about revenue architecture and who's responsible for the architecture of the system. And I think there's a lot of merit in that not being somebody who has only a sales background, only a marketing background, or only a customer success background, because there's so much baggage and assumptions and things that get carried from the way we have done it historically. And you have to think about them as a system together, not stack ranks where one's more important than the other. It's how they work in conjunction. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, that's interesting. I do see um, roles out there, GTM, even you know, VP of GTM or VP mm -hmm. of growth. Yeah. That's probably the growth, mm -hmm. I think, is probably, like you said, the really common where it's and uh, it's cool because I think there is uh, there is folks that are listening to this, whether you're in sales or marketing or uh, or whatnot or CS, um, thinking about yourselves as this like unbiased advocate for growth. Right. And a sustainable, great experience. And what and I think for me personally, even though I come back from a marketing background, my greatest success has always been when I've ultimately learned how to work with other departments, understand the other departments mm -hmm. and tie in the other departments efforts into what I'm doing. And so figuring out how it's like, Hey, cause sometimes it's like maybe expansion is like our number one, you know, go to market focus for next year, right. To get more mm -hmm. revenue and who cares about net new logo. And if you're just mm -hmm. focused on sales or just focused on marketing, you might miss that opportunity. And even demand gen could be just getting more referrals from customers, customer advocacy, or or getting customers to expand and or upsell or whatnot. And um, so I think that really stepping back and thinking about um, and in product too, think about how the product is working yes. or not working, or how can the product be mm -hmm. improved. Or um, a lot of times in go to market too. And I think uh, in the coming year we're going to have more topics around like uh, competitive advantage and competitive differentiation, pricing, um, all these things that no real one department really owns, um, mm -hmm. but that every department influences and, and really are some of the things that like make or break your go to market. So I think in general, it's like, how do we step back? And I love, I love this graph of how do all these things work well together and who cares if it's like we mm -hmm. invest more in CS versus marketing. Um, and I think that you as a leader, um, you know, in any organization, it's like, how do you find your wins? Because especially in this market, <laughs> you got to yeah. like, if you want to grow sustainably, you got to look for the things that are uh, maybe outside the box, right? And think about oh. uh, approach a problem in a very like, you can't just go pick up a book off a shelf and be like, here's the model I'm going to do that we did 10 mm -hmm. years ago, uh, especially mm -hmm. for early stage companies, because it's, uh, I guarantee you, it's going to be, it's not going to get you the same result, number one. Um, and so thinking outside the box, uh, I think is super helpful. Once you do figure it out, then you're going to be at a different point in the curve and you got to do something different. <laughs> so you're never done, really, which is both exciting mm. and perhaps a little bit, you know, a uh, little like Sisyphus at times. But yeah, when you think about who owns that go to market motion, right, that horizontal thought of it all and the system of it. It also is going to vary the balance of it as you move along this curve, mm -hmm. you know. What type of company are you in the first place? Are you services? Are you PLG? You know, are you enterprise? But then what stage are you at? And mm. all these things are going to come into play. So having some role responsible for understanding this stuff, like the curve and where you need to be and what that right balance is for you is going to be really important as we go forward. Um, and hopefully leaders in, you know, with expertise in the various parts of go to market 
can learn this too. I think that's going to be really important that everybody starts embracing this kind of mindset. Hmm. Um, But yeah, not easy stuff. No. Yeah. And and even into the integration of that, because you could have one person that owns it, but everyone uh, can benefit because they'll bring their own perspective and, mm-hmm. and filter it through this revenue architecture, right? And I think that's really important mm-hmm. where it's like, hey, how does marketing fit into it? Because I think it's, it can't be a top-down approach, right? Where it's like the CEO mm-hmm. or even the VP of growth or whoever uh, or, or, or uh, you know, chief growth officer owns it. But actually thinking about like everyone, and I wish everyone was taught on this, right? Everyone go to market or even the whole company because it's just like, it's kind of the fundamentals mm-hmm. of... And that way you can be like, okay, so how do I influence and the bow tie? How do I make sure I am, you know, and, and, uh, especially people on the front lines that are like doing the day mm-hmm. in day out. Um, so I think it's really important that yeah. like I've yeah learned a lot from obviously the course that you all did and, uh, whether you're a leader or not a leader, I think it's super helpful to go deep on these things. Cause, um, mm-hmm. once again, it gives you a perspective to like get outside of your own little bubble, right? We all have like confirmation yeah. bias. We all have uh, all have our own mm-hmm. agendas or things that we think are important and uh, how do we get outside of that? So, well, and, you know, building on that too, when you think this that you're looking at now is the go to market model. So one of six models that the revenue architecture course that you mentioned teaches and a couple of things that are important when you think about what the right go to market motion is for your organization is it's not just in relation to annual contract value though that's important like how high touch do you need to be when it comes to the various aspects of identifying, uh, prioritizing impact, delivering on it, you know, so on and so forth. There has to be some kind of some kind of mapping to the ACV coming in and the number of deals per year. But mm. it also is really important that you think about it in relation to each other, which again is kind of where things have fallen down in some mm. cases. If you look at this model and you can see, obviously the marketing sales CS activities are grouped together in a very specific way where you have targeted marketing and named accounts for the sales team and you know one to few account ownership for CSMs perhaps. And those should all be in line. Far more often what we see in organizations is they might have a targeted marketing strategy but a two-stage sales motion, and maybe they only have a help desk. And so Mm. there's this misalignment between the parts of the go-to-market. And this is where that siloed versus horizontal thing comes into play. It's not just about making sure you're doing the right things based on the contract value for the customer, but also in relationship to the activities of your your, your, uh, teammates around who are functioning in other parts of that go-to-market mm-hmm. motion. This, this slide right here is actually, I think, what stood out to me the most in the entire course. And you have some other ones that relate to this. And I probably shared this slide, I mean, with lots of people, just because I think it's, yeah. it encapsulates a bunch of different concepts. I mean, number one, like you mentioned, how do all these different motions work together, right? You have your marketing, you have your sales, and you have your CS. And how do they all complement each other? How does the growth curve you know, fit into this? If you're in an early stage company, you know, you probably shouldn't be trying to do a PLG and a named accounts enterprise, you know, 500K deals, mm-hmm. trying to do both motions. Any, let's start there, actually. Let's start about like maybe yeah. as it relates to the growth curve, how do these mm-hmm. play? And do you start with one at a time? Can you try one and do a little bit of both? Or yeah, what's your thoughts yeah. there? Uh, this is a really common error that we see. So 
let's take your example you were saying let's say it's a you know a five million dollar startup company and there's a plg product and there's an smb product and they have a few enterprise customers so they also have you know a an enterprise motion as well so it's three different things so if you go back if we look at the growth curve once again if you're trying to do all of those three things, they're likely going to not move in exact parallel. You might find product market fit for one before another one. You might figure out your go-to-market motions for one ahead of the other two. And so the pace at which each of your three segments, products, moves along this curve is going to be different. And it is really hard to travel three paths at the same time and do it effectively. Companies that are at the top of most portfolio companies for investment firms and things like that are the ones that do one at a time. Companies that focus on, let's say they start as a PLG product. Great. Do that. Get it right. Move along the curve. Thanks for sharing. That's so, so interesting. I think especially early stage companies haven't figured out what works, right? Like we, yeah. we talked about like uh-huh. under 10 and 10, under 10 million it's figuring out like that go to market fit. And mm-hmm. um, most folks have like, especially to get to like three to 5 million, it's kind of most growth I've seen is pretty haphazard. It's like, okay, we've tried this, mm-hmm. we did this. And it's just, it's an accumulation of a bunch of different things they've tried, uh, probably stopped, started again. And just it's, it's, uh, it's pretty haphazard. And part of that's just natural in some ways, I think, because you're trying a lot of different things. You're trying to, you're, mm-hmm. you don't really know what works. You're, you're trying to take, you know, every opportunity you can to get new clients. And um, so, and that's kind of natural. You don't want to risk it all going into like, you know, hey, let's build a big sales team or let's, Mm -hmm. you know, do all these different conferences or whatever it is. You kind of have to like do a bunch of small things to kind of get to the end goal. Tempting, like you said, to like just go after, uh, you know, try to be like, hey, let's try this, let's try that. And because a lot of these motions, sometimes, you know, go-to-market motions are, easy to spin up and you can you know try something pretty quickly um and it's so tempting to try it like with anything it takes time right to like find Mm -hmm. find success and like we talk about sales cycles well there's also a marketing cycle right where it's like it just takes time for brand awareness whatever you're doing to kind of get uh get a snowball effect they never really actually end up figuring out what works fully because they just try a bunch of small things and then uh they don't you know the time delay and things like that but then also, um, they are spread too thin, right? So it's just, this, it's so weird. I mean, especially your early mm-hmm. stage, it's really hard to figure mm-hmm. out. And it's a lot, you're risking a lot, right? Because you sometimes don't have a lot of time. You have only a certain amount of runway. Most companies fail or, or don't get to the next round. Is it picking like one, picking one of these go-to-market motions to, to 10 million and then kind of reevaluating mm-hmm. after that? Yeah, how do you prioritize? Is it, is it mostly just looking at your ACV and like, okay, if our ACV is under five, 5k then we should focus on community and plg um yeah just any any takeaways or like how can folks especially early stage any best practices or things you've seen that how to evaluate which which route to go yeah i think there's a few things and first of all this is why having like a good board good advisors you know people that can you can lean on to talk through this stuff this is why it's so important and data as early as you can get your data situation under control so you can actually use data that you're gathering to make decisions, super important. When it comes to the number of, we'll call them segments for the sake of ease, uh, how many segments to launch, product segments, 
versions of product, whatever. The general rule of thumb that we like to say is up until 10 million, only focus on one. Once you get to about 20 million, two, don't launch a third until you're 50 million or beyond. There's always exceptions, but generally speaking, that's about where we see the breakpoints for when you're ready to launch another one. And hmm. you're right. It's so tempting. It can be so hard because there's a few things going on in human behavior. One is that sometimes it feels like you're diluting risk by doing more things hmm. because you're covering more bases, right? Like if this doesn't work, we got these other two things going on, but you're actually shooting yourself in the foot with that because you're not going to do any of them well. And you're going to not have a strong set of activities or customers and for any any of them. The other thing that can be really hard when you're a startup too, and this is a scenario I've seen play out a lot of times, is let's say you have an SMB product, for example, and then one of your SMB sellers manages to land a huge deal or is about to, mm. let's say, <laughs> and you have a client that says, I'll sign a $2 million contract for you if you build X, Y, and Z features for me, and mm -hmm. you know, we go, two things can happen. First of all, let's just establish it's hard to say no when you're a startup to a $2 million contract. But if you do, you are potentially ceding control of your roadmap to this one customer who now has, you know, it's your biggest customer. Also, it's easy to then, if you do sign that contract, say, oh, now we have an enterprise product also. So we started with SMB, but we signed this contract. So clearly now we have an enterprise motion. So now we can go and we can promote a couple of our SMB sellers to be enterprise sellers and we're off and running. But if you stop and think about it for a minute, enterprise selling is a much different motion than SMB selling, just skills, what's involved, all of that kind of thing. But beyond that, just think about the product. If you have a product that's built to support SMB customers, the needs of that product could be far different than if you want to support enterprise customers. There might be a need for different security measures. GDPR might come into play in a way it didn't before. You might need admin panel and like roles built into the product. There's a lot of different things. So you can't just suddenly have an enterprise product because you call it that. <laughs> there's a whole bunch of other <laughs> things that need to happen. And there's so much going on when you're a startup and just stepping back to get that perspective and making sure you're making mm. the right decisions is important. And coming back to advisors and boards and making sure mm. that you have people you can talk through with, that's going to be super important because it's, it's hard when you're in it. You know? And also too, I think, you know, to your, to your example of the, the enterprise contract coming through, it's hard to know if like, Oh, maybe we should go enterprise and mm -hmm. you know, maybe, yeah. maybe SMB or PLG isn't, you know, these smaller ACVs isn't the direction we should go. Cause we have, we have, we don't have the data. Any thoughts there on like, how do you obviously folks with experience, you know, working with an organization like winning by design um, and maybe mm -hmm. actually have some, some metrics here, some thoughts here, but any like early signals that you're on the right path. Yeah. This slide is my favorite slide probably from the whole course. Um, so this is the, the growth model that you're looking at. And we talked about how it shows the funding rounds. But the thing about this curve and this piece of it only goes up to IPO and a little bit beyond, sets out a very clear set of activities that need to happen at different points along this curve. Again, there's always exceptions, but generally speaking, following this set of activities 
can really put you on a solid path. And the first one is establishing the right revenue model for your product. But immediately is making sure that you pull the founder out of the sales motion, or if it's PLG, out of you know fixing bugs and you know doing that kind of thing. But pretty early on is this concept of getting your data model in place. You can't be making data-driven decisions if you don't have data you can trust, Hmm. period. So making sure that you have that in place early is going to be really important to making sure that you're making good decisions. And as anyone who's tried to fix their data later on in the journey knows, it's never going to get easier. It's only going to get harder Hmm. and more complex. So the sooner startups can do that, I think the better. Once you have that you know, spending the time to get that go-to-market model, right? The motions that are appropriate for your needs and how they relate to each other, making sure the processes are repeatable. Uh, There's this concept of a growth formula. It's a tool that you can use to help sort of plan out how spending dollars in certain areas might impact you longer term. There's guidelines for what to focus on at different parts of this curve as you go. This to me is an invaluable tool. That's super helpful. And I love even the metrics under the go to market fit and and product market fit. Any thoughts on the data Mm -hmm. model? Um, Don't mean to digress too much. And um, I know we're short on time, so we can can Mm -hmm. wrap up here pretty soon. But um, I'm just curious on the data model, especially early stage companies, when they probably don't have a ton of historical data, number one, Mm -hmm. um, and benchmark data, I feel like is... um, less and less helpful uh, just because of, I mean, it depends on the benchmark and depends on so many different things, but it's lacking context. It's lacking the the rapid changes we've had in the past couple of years and the continued um, uh, challenges we've had in go to market and, and uh, return on the investments, et cetera. But what's your thoughts mm-hmm. on yeah, any best practices, anything that comes to mind as far as how to think about data when you're an early stage company um, before you have it, obviously, if you, you know, if you're mm-hmm. starting to get data, organize it well and and start collecting yep. it in a in a uh and investing and in making sure you collect it well but let's say you don't have it or you're just you know you're a year or two in um what are your thoughts on using benchmark data or yeah any any early signals of things you can look for to make sure you're you have the data to to make the decisions yeah i think the important thing is having a data model that goes across the whole bow tie there's definitely a tendency to focus on marketing and like top of funnel data points mm. and less other data, especially early on. So have somebody who has ownership for the data model across the whole bow tie. Make sure that you spend time getting clear on what the definitions are internally. So if somebody says MQL, what does that mean at your company? And then, like you said, making sure that there are systems that can capture all of this and that people have good data hygiene in their roles. It's part of the job. This kind of ties back to the whole who owns the health of the system. I'm a big fan of RevOps teams that sort of support the whole bow tie equally and having them own the data model. You don't need to necessarily be benchmarking early, early on. There's some signals about, you know, checking out your CAC to LTV ratio, you know, you're going to have a higher cost of acquisition when you're earlier on because you're trying to figure out what works. So that's okay. But as you move forward, you want to start getting to a healthier balance of cost of acquisition versus lifetime value. You know, there's a bunch of other best practices, you know, rule of 40, like all these different kinds of benchmarks you can use. 
But at the end of the day, you want to benchmark against yourself. Mm-hmm. And you can't do that if you don't have the data model in the first place. So if you just get that in place and keep it updated and trustworthy, you'll be far ahead of a lot of companies just by doing that. Well said. I love the clear definitions because um, everyone has a different, you know, it's always mm-hmm. like, hey, what, what should our SQL cost be? And it's like, well, what is your definition of SQL? And, exactly. and then they go pick up a number off the internet and they're like, that should be it. And it's like, oh, well, what's, you know, first the context. I think that's also what's lacking in, in benchmarks. And that's where you're getting at even with mm-hmm. your own data, right? There's just you, your, your type of product you have, the industry you're in, the growth stage you're at your go-to-market motions, the current economic environment. There's all these factors play into it. And Mm -hmm. your own data is super helpful. I love that. Getting it right, making sure you have clear definitions. Really good advice. Thank you. That was actually the last slide I have there. But for what it's worth, I think that some of the things that you showed, the graphics um, that I showed in the slides, there's six models that we teach in the Revenue Architecture course. So the data model, which is the bow tie and laying out that data is one of the six. But I showed the growth curve and the go-to-market model. Um, But there's a lot more about each of these. And it's great because you don't have to guess at a lot of things. We have enough knowledge after there being, you know, so many recurring revenue companies that succeeded and failed over the years that we know the patterns. We know what works. And so if you can learn those foundational things, you can be set up for success. And um, Jacko just published a book as well that came out like last week or something. Um, It's a very hefty textbook. But um, if you're interested in revenue architecture, it's absolutely worth the read. Awesome. Yeah, definitely recommend everyone check those resources out. I still haven't got the textbook myself. Um, but I need to get it, uh, just cause yeah, the graphs are super helpful. I remember first listening to Jocko, like probably four or five years ago and like le- learning about spiced and first you mm-hmm. need to tell him he needs to bring back his music on his events. Cause I miss his <laughs> techno, like he would, and his smile. He, yeah, he has such great energy. Uh, I really appreciate all of uh, the work you guys all done. I've learned a ton from even just watching your YouTube videos to taking the course to obviously, our conversation. And um, is there anything in closing before we wrap up as we move into 2024? um, Obviously, big takeaways from what I've heard is like making sure you kind of step out of each one of those functions, the go to market functions and have a a Mm -hmm. clear perspective on uh, bringing them all together, making sure you're doing the right things for what growth stage you're in, making sure you like focus on one go to market motion at a time and in combination what are the right go to market motions too right if you're on PLG then you should be doing these things if you're enterprise you should have named accounts anything else we didn't cover that you're just like in 2024 I really feel like go to market folks should should be thinking about um, as it relates to what we talked about or even something outside of this that you've been pondering lately that you can leave with the audience You know, I think the biggest thing is, as you're just laying out your strategic plan for 2024 is get your executive team on the same page and certainly your C-suite, but even beyond that, I've been really encouraging companies to get a group of leaders who are helping steer the ship, so to speak, and put them all through the revenue architecture course, get them all thinking about the business the right way and the system the right way. Because if everybody's coming at it from a different foundational understanding, it's going to be hard. So getting that alignment, I think, is really important. And then once you have that, whether you get help from somebody like Winning by Design or you just build the expertise within your company, 
use the data, use the models, use this information to be able to prioritize because money is not cheap anymore. And you don't have the luxury of, you know, lots of time to experiment and learn and, you know, Mm. figure out what works and all of that. So use knowledge that you have access to, to make the right decisions now. Mm. Thanks, Beth. Well, thanks for coming on the show and, and sharing all this great, uh, ideas and resources. Um, How can folks follow you online and connect with you further? Yeah, connect with me on LinkedIn, Beth Haskell. Um, And certainly I post a lot. I love to have people comment back and challenge me on different things that I'm writing about. Um, If you're interested in learning more about winning by design, uh, I'm also an executive coach. You're welcome to book time with me on LinkedIn. There's a, there's a book time box on there. Um, Yeah. And otherwise you can check out the winning by design website for a whole lot more free content and more information about the course and the book and all those kind of things. So yeah. Um, I would just encourage people to check out those things and I'm always available to chat. Perfect. Beth. Thanks again for coming on. Um, yeah, folks, I'll put those links in in the show notes so folks can check out all those resources. Yeah. I can't recommend winning by design more, uh, highly than really any other organization when the, in the reoccurring revenue, go to market motions and learn a ton from you all. So Keep up the good work. Thanks for for uh, trailblazing and uh, all that fun stuff. So yeah, thanks, perfect. Taylor. Talk to you soon, Beth. Thanks mm-hmm. so much.